Welcome to the Nothing Places podcast. This is going to be an episode as part of the Digital Place Branding Rules uh, episodes uh, that I'm recording. Well, they're intended to be recorded as I'm walking and thinking. Now I'm just walking across the River Avon on a bridge, Bristol. But I intended because the UK is going to go into a lockdown in the time of when I'm recording this again. And the idea that I talked about in the first episode about doing drifting, intentional getting lost as you walk around the city. And I was proposing to do that virtually by exploring all the digital products that have uh, become available, whereby you can almost visit or digitally places and then do these talks that way. I was going to do that as a as a gimmick, but I guess now it's going to be a necessity for uh, one month to be locked in. Then we'll see. I still haven't actually tried. To, to go on any of the, the virtual tours. Let's say I've answered them and then clicking through and maybe then talking. I, I don't know if it's going to work for me. Uh, and also it's going to require more editing to actually get on there and maybe do a screen recording and then overlay it with, with this. And then I have to think where I'm going to post the videos. So we'll see. We'll see how, how, it, how it goes. But the key thing is that there I do have a, second rule that I'll talk about, um, which will build on the first one. The first one was about building empathy with your users through uh, understanding them and how to capture the feedback. So getting some people uh, talking to them, capturing them, empathy maps. there's of course a limitation to that, to understanding that um, personal experience. Um, and also, sorry, what I'm what I mean is there is a there is a limitation in what how much can be captured from user experience research uh, through usability testing of just people you know using your website and you just watching because you. Yeah, you can capture a lot, but how how about places where people might get stuck and might get lost? So which are the digital roads that might lead to no ends and yet nobody took that turn? But you know that eventually it could be a problem. So in uh, digital design or user experience design, uh, often this is handled by expert reviews. Talk about a, a very easy way to do it. So uh, there is a set of ten rules of thumb that have been proposed actually from the nineties by Jake Nielsen, uh, and you can go on the Nielsen and Norman Group website. So that's his website together with uh, Don Norman. Uh, they set up a foundation and uh, 
they, they shared those 10 rules of thumb that uh, basically make sure that you don't build these digital dead ends that you might not be able to see from sometimes user experience, but you know they're there. So you need to make sure that your software is usable. But I'm not gonna talk about the 10 in detail. You can go ahead and, and look at that, but I'll just talk about how they came about those rules of thumb, why rules of thumb are important, because uh, that's more close to my heart with my PhD research that actually looks at how rules of thumb are useful in another context of choosing where to live. So this is where the selfish part of this uh, podcast comes in. It helps me reflect uh, on what I've been learning. Uh, and I think more broadly, question I have in my mind as I, I talk about these things is I really want to think about how rules of thumb or heuristics differ from intuitions and are they driven purely by emotion and is there anything wrong with that because as I mentioned in the first part of this podcast series. I've been thinking quite a lot about emotion as a type of a cognition rather than, you know, this mystical thing. And there is research to show that it's kind of generated by our match or mismatch between our expectations and the external environment. And how they arise and the, the words that tend to describe that is intuition. And how that's relevant to you know the, the discussion about the 10 rules of thumb for good user design is that you know they're built on observing people's intuitions over a long period of time and a lot of the of that is about how people interact with software and i think that heuristics or rules of thumb are the detailed descriptions in writing or in in language or talking that try to capture intuition but it's not that intuition is anything mystical. It's that it probably is bigger than just uh, conceptual thinking. So I can capture something with a concept. So now I'm going to try to to talk about the the concepts uh, about the you know, that showcase how to do a, a heuristic evaluation of the design of your place brand's uh, website. But it invites you to an action to do something and once you do it, you get better. I think this is where this is where um, there might be an assumed mysticism to understanding intuitive thinking or rules of thumb. I think that, that that's my current take on that. And that's why I actually recently thought about this aspiration that just the way we, we have cognitive science now, right? And it's not an old thing. Uh, how come we don't have emotional science if it's that separate? Right? Uh, you know, traditionally, more dual process oriented theories of how people think and make decisions highlight this intuition versus rationality split. So if it's that separate, is it not at all useful to study? Is it just another type of cognition that we actually call by a different name? 
or something that's caught across my mind as well is is it just not the realm of kind of more scientific thinking that we're used to is it actually something that is done in the in the arts and humanities and i think that's you know just a a matter of discussion for academic thinking but in practice we know that when you're responsible for a place brand you you have to find both scientific and art ways of um, expressing what what people most often refer uh, refer to as the the place brand's DNA, or as I like to think of it, uh, the the ability to narrativize and rationalize the process of what it's like to be in a place. You know, the best possible version of place branding. I think that's where it serves, and then it's not about trying to enforce a value system onto anything, trying to be something else. Yeah, but the place branding, best possible version, is about creating a narrative and reflecting back at your own place. But to be able to display that narrative, you know, in a broad sense, a big part of that is communication, not just with language, but with design and digital design, a big part of that. So the trap there, though, is that when uh, communicating that plays around narrative through marketing materials and promotion, there are certain problems. So you end up just decorating rather than communicating or actually providing a usable service. What I mean by that is I touched on some of the personalization problems in the last episode but there are also just known problems with what just doesn't work on a, a computer interface and yet we consistently do that um, for my own website when i didn't have time i realized i was just decorating things and not actually applying what I, <laughs> what i do in my day job as a user experience researcher uh, so I've had to steadily make amends and at least just check with the rules of thumb for a good usable design and then ask friends to at least have a have a try to give them a go, see if they can actually get there, would they get there as I expect. So it's a difficult task to, to do that and also to justify it. And in the last episode, I, d I did talk about how uh, doing user research can get to use some justification for making amends to, to your place brand website uh, that might fly more with uh, decision makers. And this one is actually a way that you can also engage decision makers because it doesn't even need to be done with users. So the 10 heuristics for good design were proposed by Jacob Nielsen in the 90s, as I said, based on loads of experience. And they've been tweaked by people using them through time. And I think also the best summary, which I'll discuss now, rather than all the 10 rules of thumb, was done by, in a course that I, I, I did from the UC San Diego Design Lab uh, by a guy called Scott Clemmer. I think his videos are actually available on YouTube if you just search for Scott Clemmer. And uh, he summarized them in 
making sure that there is user understanding, clear action, and feedback. So in the simplest terms, think about, do I know what to do? Do I know, sorry, do I, under, do I understand what's being communicated? Do I know what to do about it? And then if I do the wrong thing, would you give me feedback in error messages? Which, oh my God, it's been a bug, bugbear of mine recently. Error messages seem to not be a priority for a lot of software recently. It just boggles my mind that we used to make jokes about Windows as error messages back in the day when you would get a pop-up window and complain about it. But now it's just like things crash, something's happened, you get asked by someone, did you hang up on me or what happened? And none of you knows. So I think we're in territories where either these softwares are not stable or intentionally released very quickly so that actually the testing is done while they're making some money off of it and then at the same time doesn't let us know what the hell's going on. And I think in this um, way of thinking about it, so I think let, let's not go for the feedback first, let's talk about user understanding. I think uh, I'll give you an example of you know, uh, one of the rules of thumb out of the, that is under that category is mainly centered, and you need to think about this, is user freedom and understanding. So there are so many services that are designed with what's called dark patterns. People are trying to nudge someone in a certain direction. And we, we've seen that the ones that have, do that on scale actually works. Some of you would have seen a documentary called The Social Dilemma, where it's finally out in the open more publicly how much of that's going on. And, you know, social media platforms especially. So you don't need to do that. If people want to engage with your interfaces, they will. And, of course, you're always uh, putting a choice architecture in front of them and offering the recommended solution, but we, know, we all know when we see the line. So what I'd recommend is to think about just making the implicit explicit uh, rather than nudging people towards certain directions. And then they would give you, uh, as a reward, they would give you their attention. Uh, I think a good example of how to do that is to a degree Netflix because um, I don't know if you've thought about this but their algorithm of matching to your preferences where there at least there's a percentage that shows you a match to your preference or because you saw x and y there is a bit more explicit that not for everything I think the, the way they generate new categories based on previous preferences where you when you browse and you create this illusion of browsing through a catalog that maybe others are browsing through I think that's dangerous and it's edging on hyper-personalization. But it's still, at least they show something. And I think that that's, you know, social media companies, if they realize that if their algorithms were made public, we would still use them. But being able to see at least what, why we're seeing things, it'll be more human. Uh, and in the context of plays, digital plays branding, I think that if a lot of our organizations that do that, they're funded by public sector organizations that 
they do have a mandate to uh, nudge to an extent. You know? They're voted in. They do know better sometimes because they're specialists for certain things. Uh, you know, no matter how many times I've looked at this with my liberal head on, I still think that you know, government organizations, uh, local, national, international, you know, they, they, they sometimes do know better. But again, that can be made explicit. People need to understand what's going on. And I'm talking about usability, mainly not uh, the bigger problems. So do I understand when I click this, why am I being asked to do it and what exactly is happening? A bad example of that has been my experience in filling in details. Uh, I got coronavirus and I had to fill in details about where, uh, when I met people. And I'm doing that as I'm ill, but I need to, you know, give these people, uh, it, you know, the system generates confirmation that they can show their employer that they should be self-isolating. And I'm being asked, when did you meet them? And at that time, I was like, they're just going to get a uh, confirmation they've been with me, probably from a date generated from when I had symptoms. So I just filled in to the best of my knowledge. But then it turned out they were actually using in the back end a calculation based on when I met them, then their self-isolation starts, which is not, not mentioned. Or at least this wasn't in my understanding or attention that that's what's going to happen with that data that I was filling in. And then I had to redo it. And then there wasn't an amend option, but there was a only delete and re-add. And then at the same time, uh, this service, I think, was using like a digital form rather than a real service where you can amend. So it had sent a few times the request to people. So some of my friends where I deleted things, they basically got more calls than the others. It's a waste of resources. Uh, so you can see how people understanding what they're doing is, is important. And there are sub themes, uh, sub rules of thumb that if you go on to the Nielsen and Norman group, you can see how you can do it. Um, and then I guess action, uh, you know, and then feedback, you can see how they can relate to these examples, but I just really want to touch on how to do that step-by-step step rather than just, you know, the, the theory of it. Again, you can see the 10 rules of thumb, they're quite broad, but the way to handle them that's really useful is, again, you can pick just five people in your organization. So that doesn't even need to be somebody external. Um, so it's the cheapest way you can do some usability testing. Uh, and it's, you just give them the set of 10 rules of thumb and just tell them, click through the website or through uh, the service that we're providing digitally, um, wherever, however you want to, and just check any time uh, that any of these rules of thumb is violated and then just do that individually and then compare across themes and the academic studies that back up doing that and actually shows that five three five people actually can notice up to uh, 90 percent of the of the usability problems so we're not talking here about uh, solving bigger design issues but just are there any, as I was using the analogy from play, are there any dead ends that users that in your, uh, you know, direct uh, research sessions didn't 
uh, stumble on, but then you found that actually you know that they might be problems. So this avoids having that in your design. It's also a really good start point for design and also a good checkpoint to go through this exercise. So in my job, I do this with my team. I think every six, every three to six months, just we've been making amends, we've been making amends. Let's see if we've accidentally violated any of the rules of some of good design. If we have, then redesign that just in case. So that's the way to to handle it. Um, yeah, you don't need to wait for a user to stumble on one of these dead ends for you to know that it's a dead end. And the key thing is that it gives you some sort of a structure to start from. So never start a design from scratch. You have these rules of thumb to almost denote what's on the table and off the table in a good design space. So uh, the design space for your city or your country's digital presence might take many, 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 many variations. But at some point, we're no longer talking about, we're not having a good design. Uh, that's that's basically not on the table. So uh, to, to, to have a good mapping of the design space so you don't stumble into, into what's on the table and off the table for a good design, start with the rules of thumb, 10 of them, they've got them on. It was a Norman group and they've stood the test of time. Uh, I think they're about 30 years old now. You know, this is where rules of thumb are so robust uh, because they're broad. You know, they serve a purpose. They do have a bias. You know, most people know heuristics uh, and rules of thumb for their association with bias. Any method has a bias, but if you know what you're using it for, you're not saying, you know, I'm gonna use this rule of thumb to prove scientifically this is the one best design I could be doing. Yeah, no, you're not gonna do that. But it's cheap and you're doing something to ensure usability, which I don't know how many of the organizations that deal with place branding and communicating that digitally or providing a service through their websites, which we increasingly are probably going to have to do or providing internal services. You know, uh, I know a lot of the organizations need to provide a login so that uh, some of the members of the organizations that fund a place brand digital presence might contribute content themselves. You know, is their journey uh, user usable? Start with the, the 10 rules of thumb to avoid this feeling of not knowing where to start from. So obviously I prefer it, and that's why I did I recorded first. The building empathy with your users bit. So that's, you know, primary research first. But if you don't have the resources, sometimes it's okay to start with a, a heuristic evaluation. Uh, if you already have a pre existing website or you're inheriting something, at least do that evaluation if you can't afford to recruit, you know, some external to your organization people to do in depth empathy building with them. Okay, uh, that's it for this rule number two uh, about evaluating the usability of your digital place branding.